our God. We are your people. You've spoken to us through your word, and you've given us life, and you've called us to walk your path. We ask for your help. We confess that we sin, that we stray, and that we need you to convict us and to to remove our sin and to put us back on the path because your ways are good. They're awesome. So teach us today about this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Zechariah chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11, page 540 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Zechariah verse by verse. And today we're looking at the work of the Spirit in revival. Now, you might have noticed I have a can of bubbly, sparkling water, blackberry flavoring here, right? Okay. But it's warm, and I like cold, bubbly, sparkling water. How about you? Right. So I think I'm going to cool it off. Hmm. Didn't work. Weird. Well, you know what? I happen to have a cooler here, right? So you'd think a cooler, or, you know, or refrigerator, that'd work, right? So I, I think I'm going to... See if that'll work. All right, give it some time. Okay, let's see. Wow, it's still warm. Weird. I mean, I know that it says put it in the cooler in the ice, but I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way, right? Wait a minute, that doesn't work. Well, maybe we'll try it the right way. We'll see. Okay, think about that. Now, we can't produce revival in our own power. We need the Holy Spirit. We can't produce it in our own power, right? We need the Holy Spirit. And we can't tell the Spirit how he should do his job. I wanted it cooled by just putting it on the top. I wanted to do it my way. We can't tell the Holy Spirit how to do his job. He gets to be in charge. So what is the work of the Spirit in revival? And what we're going to see in our passage, there's two more strange visions, right? We've been going through Zechariah. We've been seeing some pretty bizarre things here. You'd almost think the guy was on drugs, but he wasn't. Remember, this is the, the use of a particular genre uh, called apocalyptic genre. So he's giving these visions very vivid pictures to give us a main truth. And so we want to discover what that is. And we're going to see that these two visions uh, were, reveal that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and removes sin. So let's look at them. Let's look at the first vision. We see verses 1 through 4, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Zechariah 5. I looked up again and saw a flying scroll. What do you see, he asked me. I see a flying scroll, I replied, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land for everyone who is a thief Contrary to what is written on one side, 
has gone unpunished. And everyone who swears falsely, contrary to what is written on the other side, has gone unpunished. I will send it out. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will stay inside his house and destroy it along with its timbers and stones. A little strange, right? Flying scrolls. But I do think with a little help, it's actually not that difficult to figure out what the main point is in this passage. Now, I want you to remember, though, a very important verse that we have been looking at that really is central to the entire uh, book of Zechariah, and especially this quest for revival, that in Zechariah's day, they experienced revival, but he also gave us some points on experiencing revival, but also even speaking of the end-time revival. And it's chapter 1, verse 3. So tell the people, this is what Yahweh of the army says, return to me. This is the declaration of Yahweh of the armies, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of the armies. Return to me, and I will return to you. He's calling his people to repentance. That's what we see here in this first vision. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. So why, first of all, the giant flying scroll? It's kind of like, a, ever been to the beach? La Playa? Okay. okay, at the beach, you see the, the, the airplanes flying by with the big long banner that they're pulling, advertising something? That's really kind of what we're seeing here, isn't it? This giant banner, only it's not adver- it's advertising something. It's displaying the sins of the people, okay? It has two different sins, one on one side, one on the other. And so we see this advertisement. So what is he saying? What's the point of this? And I believe that, first of all, this is a message from God. That's what he's trying to say. The idea of a scroll, a giant scroll, that it's not humans, it's way up in the air, it's a giant scroll. This is God's message. Let me read from Klein's commentary. He explains. He says, despite uncertainty concerning the dimensions of the scroll, the symbolism of a scroll before Zechariah clearly communicated several points. Most important of all, the presence of the scroll in the sixth vision elevated the prominence of the written message, as well as authenticating the prophet Zechariah as the authoritative spokesman from God to the people. The word scroll evoked strong biblical connotations as a frequent vehicle for communicating the divine message. While the size of the scroll emphasized its importance, The angel revealed the content of the divine message in the final verses of the vision as Zechariah gazed at the vision in bewilderment. Uh, So we see here this flying scroll, uh, the scroll representing God's word and showing that God speaks to us through his prophets, writing down his very words. Uh, Very important. This is how the people of God thought throughout the centuries. They recognized that God spoke predominantly through his prophets, through the written word of God, the scroll, and that this is our final authority, uh, that we can misunderstand things. We can make things 
fit our own ways, but God wants us to hear his word clearly. This is how we can discover what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is false. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. In the New Testament, the New Testament people of God also held this very same value of God's word, of the written word of God. And uh, so I want to read now, Paul is talking to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's giving him advice. And this is what he begins, uh, he says in verse 15. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so he's speaking with you. Timothy was raised in a Christian home, and so he's referring to that, how he's known the scriptures from uh, all of his life. Then he says this, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, he's referring to both the Old and New Testament now. All Scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word there is theopneustos. It literally means God-breathed. God-breathed it. This is God's actual words. If we were to hear his voice, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Then he goes on to say, he says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So that's what he's telling pastors, preach the word. The word. Don't just preach your own little good ideas and your fluffy sermonettes and whatever. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Whether it's popular or not, preach the word. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching for the time will come. And I think he's referring especially to the end of time. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Sounds like a dangerous spot, doesn't it? You want to gather people to tell you what you want to hear instead of what does God say in his word, okay? That's going to happen in the end. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. And so we see New Testament as well as the Old Testament, this this word here. God speaks through his word, and he's especially speaking through Zechariah here. So this message, we see this this point uh, of his word. And I want to say this. I love the Bible. I mean, I've been reading it for I don't know how many years. I never get enough of it. I love digging into the scriptures. And as I'm reading them, I really do sense God talking to me. And I also love submitting to the scriptures because I know that God cares about me, that his ways are better than my ways, that if I try to go my way. Have you ever stepped out of God's will and walked your own path for a while? How'd that work for you? (laughs) 
Okay, so so God is He really does care about us. It's it's not that God comes up with these rules because He's mean and doesn't want us to be happy. No, He wants us to experience joy, and He knows that sin will always hurt us. And so we see here that the two sins mentioned that He mentions that are on each side of this scroll represent the Ten Commandments. The, the first one is the Eighth Commandment. The second one is the Third Commandment. They're both, uh, so he put it in this way to show it's in the middle, it's the commandment in the middle of each tablet of the Ten Commandments, okay? And the, the tablet on uh, how to follow God and the tablet on how to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So you have this, these two commandments representing the whole of God's moral law, right? Now, there's a bunch of laws in the Old Testament, and many of those are what are considered the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Moses. And so we're not under those anymore because we're under the new covenant. But God doesn't change his moral standards. His moral law is from the beginning, right? From Adam all the way to the very end because his moral law is based on who God is himself and his plan, how he designed the world for us. So we're still under the moral law and he's convicting his people of their sin. That's what's going on in this first vision. Uh, And we need to recognize that God will not tolerate sin in his people. Um, He calls this, he says, this is the curse that is going out. Uh, he, He convicts and he brings the curse is referring to his punishment on his people. He does punish his people for their sins. So we have to get this point right. Sin is bad for us. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 9. Paul, I mean, uh, Peter, when he's witnessing after this uh, healing that took place, and this is what he says to the people. Acts 3, verse 19, he says, Therefore, in in light of the fact that Jesus died for you, repent and turn back. That's turn, return to God, and he will return to you. Zechariah 1, 3. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. You see how important this is? Repentance, how, how critical it is? Look at verse 20. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's the one we want, right? Season, times of refreshing, doesn't that sound good? La Playa, right? Okay, that's what we're seeing here. But it comes when we say, you know what, God, your ways are right. And I t- we turn to him, we repent of our sins and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Skip down to verse 26. God raised up his servant, Jesus, and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. It is a blessing to turn from the sin that's hurting us back to God and his plan, which brings those times of refreshing for us. So that's It's because God cares, but we have to recognize this. He will not tolerate sin in his people. Evil offends God, but thank God this isn't 
the only vision, okay? Because he does bring conviction. If he just left us there, what would we do, right? Okay, so let's go to the second vision, and we see in verses 5 through 11 that the Holy Spirit removes sin. Let's look at this uh, next vision, the seventh vision. Then the angel who was speaking with me came forward and told me, look up and see what this is that is approaching. So I asked, what is it? He responded, it's a measuring basket that is approaching. And he continued, this is their iniquity in all the land. Then a lead cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting inside the basket. This is wickedness, he said. He shoved her down into the basket and pushed the lead weight over its opening. Then I looked up and saw two women approaching with the wind in their wings. Their wings were like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and sky. So I asked the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the basket? To build a shrine for it in the land of Shinar, he told me. When that is ready, the basket will be placed there on its pedestal. Now you understood that one real easy, right? But really, with a few little helps, it's not as difficult to figure out the general gist of what he's saying in this vision. What he's referring to is he's taking sin, the woman in the basket, and removing it from the land. And it's the Holy Spirit doing it. In verse 9, it says, the two women approaching with the wind in their wings. That word wind is ruach. In the Hebrew, it's the same word for spirit. Later on, he'll use the same word in chapter 6 to refer to the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, but also removes the sin and takes it to Babylon. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a moment, all right? So the Holy Spirit removes from sin. Let me read from Stephen Rummage's commentary. He says, this vision communicates a clear message from God. He was promising to take the guilt, iniquity, and wickedness of his people and carry it away from his presence in Jerusalem. He was promising by his own initiative to remove the people's sin from his presence and confine it to its natural habitat, Babylon. From the perspective of personal application, the sixth and seventh visions of Zechariah are a reminder that God's Spirit has the power to remove the darkest sin. Putting these visions together creates a picture of the convicting and cleansing work of the Spirit. In the Flying Scroll, we can see how the Holy Spirit reveals the sinfulness of His people. In the woman of wickedness in the basket, flown back to Babylon, we can see how the Holy Spirit removes the sin from God's presence. And so we see here the two visions reveal the corporate nature of sin and revival. What do I mean by that corporate nature of it? You see, typically in America, we're rampant individualists. We're always just thinking about me right? It's all about me. Just in, so It's all individualistic. That's how we 
think. But in the Bible, they were far more corporate in their mentality. They saw themselves as a people. And conviction of sin must, we must see this as a people. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. We see in the first vision, he says, Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. Okay? It affects everybody, not just the individual. So the sin affects everyone. But look at verse 6. So I asked, he responded, what is it? He responded, it's a measuring basket that is approaching. And he continued, this is their iniquity in all the land. So our sin, but it's our sin in all the land is taken away. So sin we see how it not only hurts me, it hurts everyone, but also revival. When we're, when we're forgiven and more and more people are forgiven, it actually changes the whole land. Let me bring this point up here. Revival starts with personal repentance, but moves to widespread, even national repentance. That's what we see took place in the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah's time, a national repentance. That's what we've seen throughout history when you study revivals. It starts out as individuals, but then it spreads. Someone gets convicted, they get born again, then their joy of the Lord gets caught by others because it's just contagious, and they get convicted of their sin, they get saved, and they start sharing with everyone, and all of a sudden it's affecting all over the place. Um, when a bunch in the whole land is affected, so to speak, all right? Uh, for instance, in the Welsh revival of 1904 to 1905, fascinating revival, okay? This is in Wales where it took place, okay? Uh, started out just, uh, uh, was it? Evan Roberts was a country preacher, just not even, a, they say, not even a very good speaker, but he just had a conviction, preached, people got saved, and it just exploded, and it spread all over Wales. Thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. In fact, it changed the entire nation, the, the, the Welsh people. They, they changed so much. And in Wales, it's, there's mountains in Wales, and so a lot of the work done in Wales was uh, miners. So you had a lot of miners working in the mines, okay? They literally, because this revival, so many people got saved and everybody got changed, even their language changed. You know, miners are kind of like sailors. You know, they got, you know, terrible mouths, right? Okay, well, maybe that was a stereotype. But anyway, it's probably true. Uh, The miners, literally, when they got changed, their language changed, they had to retrain the donkeys in the mines because the donkeys didn't know what they were saying anymore. This is is a sociological fact that took place during the Welsh revivals because it literally affected the whole people of that area. Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't you love to see that? Okay, that's Revival starts with personal repentance, but it moves to widespread, even national repentance. And this is the fact of the scriptures, Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. It hurts all of us as a nation when we're living apart from God. We 
as Christians want our nation to repent because we care about them. And we recognize that sin hurts people and brings a curse. Our country right now is divided over three major sins. What I see, I see this sin of abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. There is a major battle taking place in these arenas. But I want to say this and make sure you understand it. Someone struggling with those temptations is not evil. It's only when you commit the sin that you have sinned, okay? We have to make sure we understand that. Someone who is in a situation, whether it was their fault or not, and they're, they're in a situation where they're going to have a baby and they don't know what to do and they don't have the means to be able to take care of it and they don't know what to do and they're thinking about abortion, that person has not sinned in that regard, okay? That's why we have the Pregnancy Resource Center and other things, in order to reach out and help those people say, we're going to come alongside you. We're going to help you. We're, gonna, we're there for you. And we encourage them towards life. All right? Now, if they choose to kill their baby, that is sin. But even that sin can be forgiven. And so we're not the people who are beating people up over this, but we recognize we have to promote life. Same with homosexuality. Every one of us are broken in different ways. If someone is struggling with same-sex attraction, that's not sin. It's only when you act on it that it becomes sin. And so we don't want to beat people up who are struggling in that. We want to encourage them. We want to help them that they can be changed. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so we see that. But in Tragically, in our day, we've come to a place where people are not just struggling. They're saying, these aren't sins. In fact, these are good, and if you say they're bad, you're sinning. That's where we've come to a place. And so you can see the, 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 the climax uh, struggle that's going to, that we're headed for in that. Now, in our place, though, We've said it before. I said it even just last week. People aren't the enemy. We always respond in love, but we have to share the truth in love if we really care about these people. People struggling with these temptations are not evil unless they follow through. We love the people and deeply care for them in their pain and struggle but we must speak out against the sins which are hurting them and hurting our country. If we don't say anything, then we really don't care about them because we're fine with just let you go ahead and live your sin, which we know is going to hurt them. That's not love. So we want to make sure, though, that our, our hearts are out of love. This division, though, I believe, will lead to the end time clash between good and evil. And so we see this, and that brings us to the issue of Babylon. You're thinking, what, what's this Shinar, Babylism, Babylon stuff? What's he, what's he talking about there? How did this, the ending was really weird. He took the basket and put it on a pedestal in Babylon. What, what, what is going on there, okay? 
Babylon represents the religious and political world system opposed to God. Let me read from Stephen Rummage again. He says, The winged woman carry, women carry the woman in the basket through the air to Shinar, that is Babylon, where the basket is placed on a pedestal in a shrine. The idea is that wickedness, which is so offensive in the promised land, has a home and a place of honor in Babylon. In Scripture, Babylon is not just the place of Israel's exile. It also represents sin, idolatry, rebellion, and wickedness. The Bible mentions Babylon in the Genesis account of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, when the people of Shinar tried to build a tower to take them all the way up to God. From its earliest appearances in Scripture, Babylon represents a system proudly opposed to God. The book of Revelation contains a prophecy equating Babylon in the last days with a religious and political world system based on rebellion against God. That's in Revelation 17 and 18. So from the beginning to the end of the Bible, Babylon signifies sin, and specifically the religious and political world system opposed to God. So it's religious, even. So it's not atheism necessarily, but the whole religious system that wants to elevate human beings to do things my way as opposed to God and his plan and his way. Look at Genesis chapter 11, okay? Uh, This is where it, it all began at the Tower of Babel. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11. Should be after chapter 10. Unless your Bible's weird. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, he says, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the whole earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Notice he recognizes, God recognizes, the power of unity even for evil. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Notice here we have unity in defiance of God, okay? He told them, go throughout the land and spread throughout the land. They said, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to make a name for ourselves. He scattered their language, but what we see in the end, in the book of Revelation, is they all begin to recognize they're saying the same thing. The language comes together, comes together 
figuratively speaking, and in opposition to God. And that's what we see ultimately culminating in the book of Revelation. It concludes at Armageddon. But look at Revelation chapter 17. That's the last book of the Bible. Revelation 17, I won't read all of 17 and 18, but just to give you a little flavor of what's going on, look at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. There's that word, those who live on the earth, that's the earth dwellers we saw last week, okay? Then he carried me away in the spirit to a a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now, this is also one of those bizarre passages, right? You're like, what does it talk about? I don't have time to go into that one. (laughs) But... It's because the book of Revelation, just like Zechariah, is written in that apocalyptic genre. And so we see here, though, we see clearly this is Babylon. It's that system of thinking opposed to God's actual plan. If you skip to verse 8 in the middle, it says, Those who live on the earth, the earth dwellers, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come, this beast to come who's going to have a one-world government plan. It says in verse 13, These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He's Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with Him are called chosen and faithful. A little glimpse of the very end that we see in chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon, that we know that in the end, we win. Okay, Jesus wins. It's actually not us at all, right? It's all Jesus that, that, that does this. But you see the opposition. Chapter 18 all the way through, we see this global economic meltdown predicted all the way through chapter 18, culminating in chapter 19 with the Battle of Armageddon and Jesus bringing victory and wiping out all of evil. So that's how we see this whole thing concludes. But this picture here then, he's showing us a picture. Remember Zechariah speaking of the initial time period, but also telescoping all the way out to the very end of time, bringing in this, this idea of Babylon. So what is our response As we look at these two visions, though you may not be able to figure out all the little details, it's clear what he's saying. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and the Holy Spirit removes sin. And that's a good thing for us as we side with God and his plan rather than our own plan. So first of all, our response, repent. 
Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of the armies. So we repent. I want you to turn to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. These are, this is a wonderful, wonderful prayer that all of us should pray on a regular basis. Psalm 139, that whole chapter is a great chapter, but look at how it ends in verses 23 and 24. Really, in light of how great God is, that's the whole chapter of 139. In light of that, here's our response. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way, in your path. Search my heart, O God. Show me anything in me that is bad, that is wrong, so that I might repent. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. Most of us think we're pretty good people. So most of us think, you know, we say, well, God knows my heart. Have you ever heard that? It's true. God does know your heart. But quite often, we don't know our own hearts. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. A very important verse in light of this, which is why we want the Holy Spirit to convict us because sometimes we just don't see the stuff in our own lives. Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. We can actually deceive ourselves into thinking we're going on the right path when we're not. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit showing us, search my heart, oh God, because I can deceive myself. You know, if you think about that, that's really kind of strange. How can you deceive yourself? It's like playing chess against yourself. You know what you're going to do in the next move, right? So it's just, but it's, that's how warped this whole thing is. We're, we need the Holy Spirit. We cannot. Bring conviction to sin. Only God can. And so we cry out to him, we ask him, please, O Lord. Only the Spirit can convict us, convict us of sin, John 16, 8 through 11. Secondly, share the truth in love without retaliation. The last part is hard. We, we have to share the truth because we do deeply care about people and where they're at, knowing that their sin is hurting them. And I don't mean by that that you're the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. But you share the truth in love, from a heart of love, even if they oppose you and, re, and even kill you perhaps, you do not retaliate in hatred. You, re, you always respond in love. We saw this before. I want to look at it again in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, where he says, They conquered him, Satan, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. 
See, we conquer the enemy by the blood of the Lamb simply by, by putting our trust in what Christ has done for us by shedding his blood on the cross. He died and paid the penalty for our sins we were supposed to pay. We put our trust in him. And so we conquer the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, but also by the word of our testimony. We share what God has done in our lives, and we share the truth in love, even if it means dying, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Share the truth in love without retaliation. And third, don't compromise with the world system of Babylon. We must hear this. Don't compromise with the world system of Babylon. Keith Green was an incredible man of God, sang Great, great music. It is tragic that he died so young. But he had a message, and that was in that revival that took place in the 70s and early 80s. He had a message, and it was no compromise. That's his, one of his albums, that was the title, No Compromise. We cannot compromise with the world system of Babylon, thinking that, oh, that's how we're going to get their favor, or that's how we're going to make things happen. We have to realize the opposition and respond in love. And then finally, remember, it's all by grace through God's power, not our own. I want to finish with an illustration. It says, a man purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake. He dropped the mouse into the snake's glass cage. The tiny mouse saw that he had a serious problem on his hands. The snake was sleeping in a bed of sawdust, and though the snake was asleep, the mouse knew at any moment the snake could wake up and eat him. So the mouse did the only thing he could think of. He started covering the snake with sawdust chips. He dug down and pushed the sawdust chips onto the snake until the snake was completely buried under the sawdust. When he had finished burying the snake, the mouse sat down and rested. He thought the problem was solved. But the man watching knew the problem was not solved, but only hidden. The solution to the mouse's problem could not come from the mouse. The solution had to come from the outside. The man took pity on that little mouse and reached in, picked him up, and removed the mouse from the cage. No matter how hard we may try, we cannot cover our sin or deny our sinful nature. Our own sin will eventually awake from its sleep and shake off its cover, and sin's consequences will devour us. Were it not for the saving grace of the master's hand, sin would eat us alive. But praise God. His spirit can convict us of our sin and guilt, and then he can take the guilt and shame of sin away from us. His spirit can deliver us from the power of sin and temptation. He removes the darkest sin. That's good news. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do confess that play with sin sometimes and it is because we enjoy it. 
but we recognize the truth from your word that it is not good for us or anyone else. So please forgive us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to search our hearts, to convict us of sin, and that help us to be quick to repent. And please, bring revival. Lord, start with us. Help us to be soft towards you, to see that your way is good and right and true. And as we begin to follow you, that others would come alongside and begin following you as well. And that we'd see that just start here at Harvest, start here in St. Cloud with the, the cities, the churches here, and that you would move mightily in our midst. And then you'd spread out to Minnesota, the United States, and the world, oh God. You'd bring this revival we read about. We don't want to just read about it. We want to experience it, please. Only you can do it. We're available. So come and do your work even now as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our King.